to give you a little background for the text this morning, which is not the one in your order of worship. It's an encounter with Moses and the Lord. You remember Moses is the reluctant servant, and I capitalize reluctant. So let's listen now to this conversation that's happening from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am prepared. I am appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites from the Egyptians that are holding them as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this land. So we're the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know how you heard that, but Moses was scared to death. And Moses, just a little history, gave the Lord a lot of excuses. You know, you remember some of them? You know, I can't do this, the people won't follow me, and they didn't. And then there were things like, I don't speak really well, so the Lord gave Aaron to speak for him. I guess it's not really good to tell the Lord no. I mean, you remember Moses' background, you know, he bulrushes and then he was taken into the court, Pharaoh's court. He was an Israelite by birth, Jewish. He was brought into the court by one of the ladies. He grows up and he learns of his history and then he gets into a scrap with a one of Pharaoh's soldiers and killed him. And like a murderer, he decides it's better to leave town. So he did. He went to Jethro's area and met these nice young ladies and decided, well, this would be a good place to settle down. I'll just have a nice, calm, easy, married life. And then one day he just kind of stumbles around to this burning bush. He's curious. We're all curious. It doesn't consume. It just keeps burning. And he walks in. He gets a little closer. And suddenly, 
the voice comes and says, take off your shoes, your sandals, you're on holy ground. Now, he had a choice. He could leave or stay. He stayed. He took off his shoes, sandals, and then he gets this message. And so he gets to go back and tell his father-in-law that he's going to Egypt, back where he was a wanted man, with his daughters and some of the cattle. And he's going to appear before Pharaoh. Well, he got Jethro's blessing. I don't know how, but he did. It's kind of in this thing that Moses says, What's your name? If you have a name, then I can identify you with some of the gods out here. Which one are you, by the way, of all the ones? I love the answer. Do you remember it? I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says to him, well, if I'm going to lead people, what about these Israelites who are the elders? And he said, you know, I'll take care of that. And so he went back, and sure enough, they said, no, you're crazy. You're nuts. We're not going to go do that. <laughs> Approach Pharaoh. Don't give me, give me a break. And so he comes back to Pharaoh, or to the Lord, and the Lord says, you're going to Pharaoh with a message. Let my people go. They had been in slavery 400 years. Now, if you put your place, put yourself in Pharaoh's place, and I kind of categorize Pharaoh as not smart, but he's also not stupid. I can't afford to let these people go. I mean, you know, it's an economic issue. So he decides the way to break this up and to break Moses is to increase their workload. And he devised to divide those slaves against Moses. And so he does that by making work harder and paying less. The idea was to run Moses out of Egypt, or to use modern expression, to make him leave Dodge. There were economic reasons to not free them. I mean, you got to keep the wages low if you can afford if you can afford to build those big structures that we call the pyramids. So the way you handle this is you raise the production bonuses for those who have the whips, right? It's a good management technique. And they're slaves, aren't they? They're lazy. And so just beat them a little more and give them a little less straw to work with. We'll show them who's boss. They're not really ready to be free. I can imagine Moses standing up there and saying, why did you send me? And how did I get into this mess? Change is hard to implement. When the pressure's off, we stop. There's always the self-interest. There are the economic problems. 
cheap labor force, it was good because we couldn't really cover the cost of more labor. And you can handle this by simply getting those people to fight against themselves, not together. It's been a technique used against labor unions for a long time. Well, Moses does what he's told, and he confronts Pharaoh ten times. And you may remember the story, you know, we start here, we start with frogs, we start with the river turns to blood, we start with all kinds of things. And Pharaoh says, okay, we'll, we'll free him, and then next time he says, no, we won't. The bottom line is, Moses, you're bad for business. And so, finally, the Pharaoh lets them go. Well, you would think that would be the end of the story. They get out to the river, the lake, Red Sea, whatever it was. And so now the slaves, as they were, start complaining to Moses, like, why did you bring us out here? How did you ever get this started? And I could just see Moses again, why me, Lord? How did you ever get me into this mess? Reminds me of a young seminarian. Spent 21 years in school. He graduated from Crozier Baptist Seminary. It's a Northern Baptist or American Baptist Seminary and back east. Graduated with honors. They recommended that he go on to do Ph.D. work. He did. He went up to Boston University. He did what a lot of young seminarians do. He met some nice young lady, and they got married. He was finishing up his residency and looking at what he would do for a job. It's kind of a common theme for those of us who are in seminary. Sooner or later, you have to work, you know. And he had three options. He could go to a church in Massachusetts. There was a church in New York. And then there was one in Montgomery, Alabama. And that one kind of caught his interest. He had no interest in living in the South. He knew the South. as did his wife. And this place called Dexter Avenue Baptist Church was a small church. 300 members. It was known for being a very intellectual church, well-educated, was influential, and financially was doing well. This young minister did not want to spend his life in the parish. He was wanted to be an academic. But he thought if he was going to spend some time in seminary, Teaching, he needs some parish experience. So he decided for three to four years they would go down there. Now, this was a big decision because his wife wanted to go to this conservatory. So she put those plans on hold. They went to the South to see it firsthand, not to participate, to see it. First year in Montgomery went easy. He did exactly what he planned to do. He had work on his dissertation to finish it up, and he did. Some of you think minister's job is easy. Well, he made it easy. Preached on Sunday, went to committee meetings. He taught on Wednesday night at the Bible study and teaching. He worked with a youth group, and he visited the sick. 
And that seemed easy enough and well enough until on December 1st, 1955, an employee of the McGimory Fair department store was getting on a bus and was sitting there, and when they pulled up to another stop, there were some white men who came on board, and the bus driver told her to get up and let them have her seat. You know what I'm talking about. And she was tired. And she said, no. And so Rosa Parks was arrested. Well, there was a group in town called the Women's Political Coalition. Excuse me, my voice is a little cloggy this morning. And they heard about it. And the coalition was tied into the Ministerial Association, and they said, go bail her out. And they did. So things were brewing in the South. There was a volunteer committee set up at the First Baptist Church, and so they called for a boycott. It was just off the cuff. It wasn't to last long. Just one day, good boycott. And as the story goes, this young pastor was in the Dexter Church, and the senior ministers appointed him to go run off on the mimeograph machine. You remember those things where you used to crank them and ink it? They were a mess. Had ink all over himself. And so he printed up a thousand copies of information about the boycott, which was to play, take place on Monday morning, asking those who had cars to pick up people at bus stops and transport them, but not to use the bus. Well, in the process of this, one of those flyers got to a maid in one of the homes, and she did not read English. Didn't read anything. So she handed it to her employer to read and tell her what it was. Well, they panicked, and they went to the newspaper and said, look what the blacks are doing in Montgomery. And so they published it on the front page of the paper. My goodness, wasn't that good publicity? I suppose the paper didn't think that African Americans would read. It's called the Advertiser. And so the Advertiser sends the copy of the memo all across Montgomery. Monday morning on December 5th, 1955, 50,000 people of color boycotted the bus system. As a result, the clergy in town said, we need more organization to this. So they formed the Montgomery Improvement Committee. It turned out that this young minister was late to the meeting. He couldn't find a parking place, and so he shows up 15, 20 minutes late, and he takes a seat. He's trying to kind of catch up on what's been going on in the meeting, and there's been a lot of verbal things. And over in the left-hand corner in the back, three rows about in on that, in that sanctuary, Mr. Rufus Lewis stands to his feet, and he says to the chair, I would like to nominate the Reverend Martin Luther King, for this position. And Dr. King said before he could get to his feet, there was a second, and before he could decline it, all in favor say aye, and he's in. 
And he confesses that the first thoughts in his mind were, how am I going to talk to this with Coretta? We've agreed that I'm taking life a little easier, having time for the family, time here with her. Someone who went to the South to observe. And some sudden moment is in the middle of it. The week before, he had just declined a position with the NAACP to be their chairperson. I don't need this. I'm an academic. I've just completed my PhD. It's been accepted. I'm looking for a job in the North where I can teach. That's my calling. Why me, Lord? Why am I here? Fearful, inadequate, uncertain is how he describes taking on that position. 381 days later, the nonviolent doctrine had been adopted. He wrote it. The bus company was in bankruptcy and was negotiating a new deal. People of color could sit where they wanted, and not only that, there'd be a percentage of them who were going to be bus drivers. It's interesting that I've seen that bus. In fact, I sat in that seat. It stayed in the Montgomery junkyard until about 15 years ago when they put it up for sale in terrible condition, and the Ford Foundation bought it and moved it to Dearborn Village in Detroit, Michigan. So if you ever go there, there's a great exhibit with the bus that's been restored and, and some interesting historical documents. But that journey that Dr. King was on was to go to lots of places. You remember the Birmingham bombings where those young children were killed. That investigation went on until just a few years ago when we finally figured out who it all was. There was Selma. If you ever go down there, there's an interpretive center halfway between Selma and Birmingham or Montgomery. Great documentation that the national parks have done on that whole march. A young man who just went to observe. Andrew Young, who was mayor of Atlanta several years back, said it had not been for Dr. King and the country would be look a lot different than it does today, and the city of Atlanta would look more like Beirut than a prosperous metropolis. The road was rough, and nonviolence was not easy. I encountered people like Bull Connors. There's a letter that Dr. King wrote when he was in the Birmingham jail called the letter from the Birmingham jail. And if you have time, pull it up and read it this week. He's talking to people like me, clergy, white clergy, who are being critical of why it takes so long or why they were saying take longer. Listen to his response. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed. 
The nations of Africa and Asia are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunchroom sounder. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the sting of darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have been seeing vicious mobs lynching your mothers and fathers at will and drowning your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in the airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see the tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And you see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little metal sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward the white people. When you have to conduct an answer for a five-year-old who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep, thank you. To sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your last name becomes boy, however old you are, your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respect of title of Mrs. When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly in tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, you're plagued by the inner fears and the outer resentments. When you're forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodyness, and when you understand why we find it difficult, to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our little our impatience, unavoidable impatience. Powerful, isn't it? Kind of sticks. And so I read it, not for enjoyment, but for challenge. Have we fixed the problems? Well, researchers tell us not quite. Maybe not near. There are still today, and I checked this morning, 13.4 million children living in poverty, of which over 65 to 70 percent are Latino or African-American. One-third of minorities in the country. California has 75% of children in poverty, of those in poverty, are Latino or black. Total percent of in poverty of children is about 19%. Years ago, it was true, and I think it still is, that black males are three times more likely to have a chance of being murdered than admitted to college. In Harlem, the chances of living to age 40 are better than in Bangladesh. 
It's soul-searching. I remember the last evening that Dr. King spoke. My wife and I were in Dallas, Texas. I listened to his speech, and I was troubled. And I said, this sounds like someone whose life is coming to an end. We watched it, the whole thing, the whole rally. And the next day, an assassin's bullet took him. But the last sentence of that speech that he gave in that rally goes like this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountain, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain, and I've looked over. And I have seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's a reminder that God calls lots of people to do lots of things. Not as big as this. This was one of those monumental moments. And it's not really a story of MLK or Moses. It's about what God does. He stretches us. Sometimes beyond what we may even think we can do. And from the words from Micah, love justice, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And so on this, Martin Luther King Jr. birthday and celebration, we as a Christian church look and just simply say, thanks be to God.